Consensus Network. I used to think of it as this thing that's digital money that you can buy some and you hope the number will go up and then you sell it for the stuff you really wanted, namely money, the real money. I've come to a very different view, which is that Bitcoin is resistance money. It's a very special kind of money. It's a niche money that is maybe not as useful as some other monies in some ways and for some purposes, but can do things that basically no other money that humanity has ever invented can do. Digital money is not special. Most money consists of little digital entries and ledgers. So that's not special. What's special is digital money that you can own yourself. That's a bearer instrument. And that's what makes Bitcoin special. That's the mechanism that allows it to play this resistance role because then you don't need trusted institutions to hold your money for you. So those three trusted roles that digital money always involves, mediators, managers, and makers, Bitcoin gets rid of all of that. And that's very empowering for individuals. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. Get ready for some serious philosophy today because we're joined by Andrew Bailey, philosophy professor, Bitcoin researcher, and co-author of the book, Resistance Money. We'll discuss many topics from the lacuna of Bitcoin in academia and why economists should talk to philosophers more, to deep questions like what is Bitcoin and what are the long-term psychological effects of hodling. This episode has a lot of food for thought, but before we dive in, we'd like to quickly remind you that the best way to support the show is to send us a boost or stream us some sats using a value-for-value podcasting app such as Fountain. If you're listening to this show as a podcast, check it out on Fountain. You can earn sats from listening, and you can support us and all of your other favorite shows. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe to the Consensus Network channel, and turn on notifications so you never miss a weekly episode. Also on the channel now is Once Bitten with Daniel Prince, so be sure to check that out too. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors, Wasabi Wallet, Orange Pill App, and BitcoinBook.shop. All their information is in the description, we'll be talking a bit more about them later. And now, without further ado, here is Andrew Bailey on the Freedom Footprint Show. Andrew, welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, it's a pleasure. Yes, uh, welcome. You're, you're calling from um, Singapore, is that right? That's right. Beautiful, uh, usually sunny, but today a bit overcast and rainy. It's actually quite nice, though. It's cooler than usual. Perfect for sitting inside and, and chat about Bitcoin philosophy then. Well, every day is a perfect day for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, why don't we jump straight into the meat of this thing? What is Bitcoin to you? I used to think of it as this thing that's digital money that you can buy some and you hope the number will go up and then you sell it for the stuff you really wanted, namely money, the real money. I've come to a very different view these days, which is that Bitcoin is resistance money. It's a very special kind of money. It's a niche money that is maybe not as useful as some other monies in some ways and for some purposes but can do things that basically no other money that humanity has ever invented can do. And the, the big picture that I see there is that it has this resistance role, can help individuals and empower them 
to resist the influence of institutions, whether private or public. Now, how does it do that? Well, the main mechanism that I think of that Bitcoin does that, the, the way it does that, is by being not digital money, but something more like digital cash. And that was, for me, a really important distinction to discover and to probe and to play with and really sit with for a while. I think when, people, when we first encounter Bitcoin, we think of it as just, okay, it's digital money, right? We just need to make update our money, make it digital. But in fact, as you guys know, digital money is older than any of us. Digital money dates back, uh, I was born in 84, I don't know about you guys, I'm, I'm guessing uh, 70s maybe, nude at, at the oldest. 76, yeah. 76, yeah, so digital money is older than all of us. Digital money is not special. Most money consists of little digital entries and ledgers. So that's not special. What's special is digital money that you can own yourself. That's a bearer instrument. And that's what makes Bitcoin special. That's what is the, that's the mechanism that allows it to play this resistance role. Because then you don't need trusted institutions to hold your money for you. And as it turns out, you don't need them to make the money for you either or to stand as intermediaries when transferring the money. So those three trusted roles that digital money always involves, traditional digital money, mediators, managers, and makers, Bitcoin gets rid of all of that. And so now we have money that lives in computers that we can own and transfer without institutions. And that's very empowering for individuals. Absolutely. So there's, there's my, my big picture hypothesis about Bitcoin. I just, I just gave you like yeah. chapter one of our book right there. Uh, yes. that's, that's how we think about what Bitcoin is and its fundamental difference from everything else. Okay. Yeah. I, I both agree and disagree. And I'd love to get into the meat of that there later in this conversation. But you mentioned your book there. So, so can you give us the TLDR on your backstory and what you're working on and uh, what the book is about? Well, thank you for, for the interest, by the way. I work with a team of other philosophy professors. And together, the three of us have written a book, which is coming out hopefully by the end of this year, which is a comprehensive evaluation of Bitcoin. The title is Resistance Money, subtitle, A Philosophical Case for Bitcoin. The subtitle might be a little bit misleading because we don't just use philosophy. We also use computer science and economics as one must to understand what Bitcoin is, what it's doing to the world. And one thing that sets our project apart or that we're trying to do that's distinctive is being both academic. That is, we're really diving deep. You cite hundreds of sources. We go as deep as we can without being truly ridiculous. Uh, so, so that people who really want to think about this deeply can, can do it with us. And second, we try to be pretty even-handed. So this isn't cheerleading Bitcoin. It's not a book designed to get people to buy Bitcoin, nor is it a book that is designed to get people to hate Bitcoin. It's not fudding Bitcoin, if you like. We're trying to acknowledge that there are real trade-offs here, but that Bitcoin makes the world better off despite those trade-offs. And that by adding this new thing to the world, digital money that is cash-like, that's resistance money, actually makes our world better. And that we would want that in our world and choose that over a world without it. So, yeah, yeah. The, uh, my books are sort of where, where, where you're... Uh, they, they start where yours end then because they go into the ridiculous philosophy things and uh, they they do uh, they are designed to uh, encourage FOMO. I think we need all sorts. That's my view. <laughs> yeah, so but do but I. I feel so. like there's this there's a lacuna 
in academia, which is people who actually engage with Bitcoin and who understand it, who are also pro-Bitcoin. So there's all these academics who opine about Bitcoin and they just don't know what they're talking about. They, They fundamentally have failed to engage the community and that's somewhere where we're trying to improve. Oh, I we, see. I, we are I, all Bitcoiners ourselves and we talk to Bitcoiners and we've, uh, I counted up just the other day, we've had 99 people so far comment on our book, many of them developers, uh, users of Bitcoin. These are not random economists who just read about it on this one paper. Uh, these people actually know Bitcoin and they're helping us improve our book. Excellent. I, I see so many topics to bring up here because like, Bitcoin and philosophy, that's, that's what, what this show is all about. And uh, yes, I, I think that the, the, my latest book is this one here, uh, Praxeolo- about Praxeology. And I think Praxeology and Austrian economics is very connected to philosophy. They, they sort of, it sort of intertwines with philosophy. And especially when you add absolutely finite um, money supply to the mix, you can very easily get into very philosophical uh, territory about what value is and about what having something that is going to be worth more than everything else over time does to your brain, or at least the, the belief that it will, how that can rewire you and how different that is from a, a traditional currency. So the first, the first question I want to d- dig deeper into then is, uh, could, could I, I comment on that actually? Yeah, sure. I, I did, I did look at your book. I didn't read the whole thing, but I read. Uh, a, a chunk. Austrian types are often frustrated by the reception in the academy. Academic economists either know nothing about Austrian economics or they hate it. Yeah. And I, I think you actually put your finger on one reason why that's the case, which is that Austrian economics isn't really part of economics as it's now known. It's actually closer to philosophy of economics or just political philosophy or social philosophy or social theory or some some weird intersection of those things. And so there are these weird accidents of history in the academy that lead some of these more obscure intersectional fields to get omitted. There's no department that has that as its title. And economists stopped studying their own history probably sometime around 1970. And you can't really understand the Austrians without understanding the history of economic thought. And reflecting about economic methodology, that is a very, very narrow portion of academic economics too. And, and so there, there's this weird positioning where there's this important economic and intellectual tradition that is mostly ignored in the academy, but you kind of need to pick up at least a few bits of it to understand Bitcoin. It's not, not the only game in town for understanding Bitcoin in my view, but uh, it's one useful frame at least. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's a crucial part of understanding economics and, and uh, especially the economics that's taught in universities and what's fundamentally flawed with it. Since, since the, it, it does not build, uh, it's not uh, built up from these irrefutable axioms. And I think without those other schools of economics are, are doomed to be somewhat pseudoscientific forever. Since, since they claim to be doing things that they can't really do. So because, because value is subjective, homogeneity is subjective, fungibility is subjective. All, everything in economics is first and foremost. A, a subjective valuation and, and mm. not something you can measure objectively. So, so, but that's my personal opinion. Like, uh, speaking of old ec- economists and Austrian economics, uh, Friedrich Hayek once said that money sh- 
should really have been an adjective all along and not a noun. Mm. Uh, so different objects have different moneyness to them. And I really, really like that idea. And what, what, what's, what's your, what's the first thing you think when you hear that? You may know this Canadian central banker, JP Koning, who's been blogging about, among other things, Bitcoin for over 10 years now. The name of his blog is Moneyness. And he started out in 2013 writing about that very idea. And he was always intrigued by Bitcoin. Most of his blog posts across that 10 year span have been about why Bitcoin is bad or why Bitcoin at least isn't very good. But uh, that, that, you asked me, what's the first thing I think of? Actually, I, I think of JP Koenig, who's, who's been preaching that gospel for a long time. There's a deep insight there, which is, I guess there's, there's more than one that it could help us unlock. One, so, so one phrase you can start to use is moneyness, and it starts to evoke in people this idea that it's something that comes in degrees and that more than one thing can have. A phrase that I like to use with my own students and in writing that has a similar effect is the plural of money, monies. Instead of just talking about money, we talk about monies. And all of a sudden, it raises this question for students. They want to know, okay, well, what are the various monies? Oh, I have choices here. Oh, do I? Could I use a different money in this situation? Why would I use this money rather than that? Could this money be better along some dimension than some other money? So using even just, it's like a, it sounds like a stupid rhetorical trick, but it actually, when you use that word moneyness or use money as a plural, monies, it starts to dig into your head and change the way you think about money. And you start to see things that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't have seen before. So uh, I like the strategy, Newt. And that's my own version of something uh, quite similar, I think, in spirit. Yeah. When I hear that and when I hear money in plural form, like monies, I immediately get the, like, if it's just a number, why are there several? Like, mm. why are there more than one type of money if it's just a uh, numerical representation of subjective value judgments? Why? Why would we need more than one? And... The follow-up question to that is, if there are monies, wouldn't they over time just converge and like funnel into the most, most money, money? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, would it, would right. they just all funnel into one? And is that what we're seeing? Like, I don't really like calling fiat currencies monies because they're, they're not, they're, they're currencies. And that's a, maybe a subset of money. But the point is that people can create more of it without, without uh, any cost attached, really, especially in the digital era. Yeah, you can create money without almost no cost, uh, which means that it's not money, it's currency. But even that would converge to one in the long run, right? Because isn't that what we're seeing in the world now, that the dollar gains power over all the other currencies since, since it is de facto the world's uh, reserve currency? Or what's your take on that? The winner-takes-all theory of network effects with money has some a priori pull for me. I see the theory, I think about it, and I think, yeah, that, that's got to be right. And yet, over my lifetime, it hasn't proven to be true. and hasn't proven to be true in the history of money. That is in most places, at most times, there's been multiple monies and sometimes they have very different properties. And I don't think we see evidence for an, an overwhelming convergence or a, an overwhelming of all the other kind of uh, features of money being overwhelmed by their network 
effects. So there are different reasons to use different monies in different places in different times. And but, so but, I think of the, the, the network effect pull uh, is, is one factor that, uh, that factors into people's decisions about which money to use, but it's not the, the overriding one. That's just what the empirical evidence seems to show. Isn't that just, yeah, but th th that's a funny word too, empirical evidence. Isn't oh, that yeah, just- I, I know from your book that you'll be suspicious about that. In, in, in terms of economics, yes, highly suspicious of it because like, uh, to me, that suggests that if, if you can a priori deduct that money should converge into one, uh, wouldn't the empirical evidence only show that uh, something artificial was going on? Uh, so that in um, uh, different nations having different money, isn't that just because someone put up barriers in order to enrich themselves? Like if 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 I can. If I can say that this is my territory and here I have the master money printer, then you you become extremely powerful. So isn't that like if we historically look, look, look at this from a historical perspective and how banks came to be and then how central banks came to be, that this is the reason rather than uh, if, if we would have had a, a global free market all along, wouldn't the, conver the conversion already have happened? Uh, and also, like even private actors, like can have an incentive to have an internal money system, such as Disney World, for instance, uh, uses some Disney coin or an, or World of Warcraft gold or anything like that. Like tokens that represent money in a certain environment can exist because one single party has an incentive to create them. That that's what I'm saying. But but like if you look at What's really the world's reserve money? It's it's still gold, but that's what the central banks sit on. Uh, and uh, you, what's the world's reserve currency? Well, it is the dollar, since oil is priced in dollars, and that's the biggest biggest thing, right? So, so uh, what's your thoughts around that? There's a lot there. Let me focus on one small claim, and then there's a bigger question here about theory choice both in economics and just in general. When we have competing theories, how do we choose between them? The small point is about gold. I'm curious about why someone might say that gold is, what was the phrase you used? Was it that gold is some qualifier than money? What was, what was that? No, well, still the world's reserve money. Uh, the world's I, reserve money. I, I, I'd say that mainly because gold has been hijacked by by large players and there's not much gold in circulation anymore in comparison to what's kept in vaults but yeah for, forget about the gold point i don't even have the like any any figures in my head of how much gold there is in comparison to other assets on on the central bank's balance sheet so that's that's not really what, what i'm digging at here it's it's more like is the the existence of multiple monies is that derived from the fact that uh, there are there have been forceful interventionism going on in markets rather than it's something that happens on its on its own if the market can be open and free i like to think about this as theories that make predictions and that we can test to see if the predictions come true and then modify the theories as required and i know people who write books called praxeology, probably don't like that methodology. But here's how I would apply it here. And then I'd like to hear what you think about that, Newt. 
So let's say we have a theory that says in equilibrium, the tendency is towards unity of money. That is that we can expect convergence towards one money. Now, sounds like a good theory. I understand the idea behind it. Network effects are very powerful and maybe more powerful for money than anything else except maybe languages. So they are potent and they drive us towards unity and equilibrium. And yet, let's look at the world then and see if we in fact have achieved unity of money. The answer doesn't appear to be yes. So then we need to either reject the theory or revise it. Now, I think what you're suggesting is that we revise it and we say, uh, unless there are certain, and then you specify some other conditions, then the tendency is towards unity of money. Now, here's a cost, an intellectual cost. When you start to add those extra conditions, you say, well, unless there's this happening or this happening, this force, this intervention, this intervention, that force, that force, that makes the theory more complicated. Now, complicated theories aren't bad, but I think that they are less likely to be true. And you can think of this as just an application of so-called Occam's razor, that the simpler theory is more likely to be true. So uh, it doesn't make it a bad theory overall. doesn't mean that we shouldn't choose it, but it is a cost to choosing that theory. Now, there may be other models available that can accommodate the data we see, namely that we don't find unity in money, that there are diverse monies that don't have so many extra theoretical additions. And that would be an attractive theory of those theories, an uh, attractive feature of those theories by comparison. So maybe consider a, a physics example. You have a theory that says that things fall when dropped. Okay, seems good. And then there's a bunch of stuff that when you drop it, it doesn't fall like birds or whatever. And so we add to the theory, oh, things fall when dropped except for birds, except for drones, blah, blah, blah. That would not be a very good theory of physics. And in part, one of the things that would make it not a good theory is that it adds this extra complication so it just drives down that the fancy word for this is it drives down the prior probability of the theory, even if it drives up the ability of the theory to predict the a posteriori evidence correctly. So for that reason, I'm kind of suspicious of gerrymandering the theories like this. Uh, and, and I would say instead, this is an attractive theory that money goes to one is attractive in theory, but it doesn't appear to hold out in practice. Could I try to quickly... Tease this out just a little bit further, though, because I, I, the factor that I wonder is, is at play here is if you actually have nation states that are declaring by fiat that a certain currency must be used, then that's sort of an externality on the system. It's not a, it's not a system that's able to operate with just the mechanisms of uh, supply and demand, the, what people would naturally choose to do. Right. So, and then within those, those, states, whatever you want to call them, you do get kind of a, a unity there because they say you have to use this as the the money. So the the thing is, is are we in a case where the evidence doesn't exist because it's impossible for it to exist because the system isn't free? I'm puzzled slightly by some of the term the terminology used there. So for example, you said something about supply and demand being, I forget the verb used, I'm like not, not being regarded here. But in fact, when a state requires that money be paid, uh, that taxes be paid in a certain money, that creates demand for that money. So we use supply and demand to understand why people would want that money. It's because uh, they need it to do something, to buy a service from the state. And what they're buying from the state is the service of not being attacked. The, the service is not being thrown into jail. And so they, they need the money to buy that service. So uh, that drives up demand for the money. And so they, they use it. Yeah. And, and what I'm trying to get at with that is that with 
is the reason that we don't see this unity of money that there are these external factors that you have states that mandate the use of a certain currency or say a corporation mandates that you use the mines mine bucks to get what you need from the the company store or something like that like those those externalities of power being used on individuals that would otherwise alter their preferences i guess i would like a theory that is useful in the world to make predictions. And if those factors do exist in the real world, then I'd want a theory that takes them into account. And I would note that there's a special case of this in the Bitcoin case. So you've pointed to corporate authorities that might insist on being paid in a certain money. You've pointed to state authorities that do that. There's a maybe less obvious, but really fun case in Bitcoin. Think about people who require that they be paid for ransomware in Bitcoin. That is effectively, it's functionally the same thing as a state that demands being paid in gold or in dollars. It creates demand for Bitcoin. So when people say there's no floor of demand for Bitcoin because there's no one taxing denominated in Bitcoin, that is false. There are people who impose taxes denominated in Bitcoin, but we call them hackers and they do ransomware and they often ask to be paid in Bitcoin. So that creates a demand floor in the same way that taxes do or that corporate uh, demand to be paid in their own token might create a, a demand for for that token. So kind of a fun case, isn't it? Uh, it, it both answers a standard anti-Bitcoin argument and maybe makes Bitcoin look a little bit suspicious or more like fiat monies. But structurally, it is in that respect. Totally agree with, to, to that. The thing is, I have so many, uh, so, so many caveats here about, about the whole. Uh, first of all, I wouldn't call I wouldn't call this a theory. I would call it a logical conclusion that if, if you have a totally free market without any interventionism where all, all interactions are voluntary and consensual, that, that is the only scenario in which, in which this is applicable. So you can say that it's not very useful to, to analyze what's going on in reality at this moment in time, but it's still it's still a useful tool to see that if if all the other factors were uh, uh, given uh, and like if, if all those criteria were met, then we would converge into one money. So and you can logically prove that by deductive reasoning alone. So so then you come to uh, the conclusion that interventionism is going on in the markets because it has to be this way, and it wouldn't be we wouldn't have monies. If this was the case, so you can, what you can prove is that someone is setting rules for other people without their consent. So you can prove that the state is, is doing that. And you can prove that, yeah, ransomware is doing that. Someone is interfering with people's choices so that their choices are not consensual, but they may be voluntary, but they can still be made at gunpoint, and then they're not consensual. So there's a, there's a distinction between consent and and consensual and voluntary there. So so I think this is this is the framework that praxeology gives you. It can give you a, a hint at what would have happened if everything was voluntary and with, made with consent, and what happens if it isn't. I, I think that's what we're living in, and that I probably. That's unavoidable, even on a Bitcoin standard, as you say, ransomware. But there's there are other things too. I don't think I I don't believe in a utopian libertarian uh, world that would just uh, magically Sad. appear. And, 
but but I do think that these tools give you a framework for how to how to view the world properly and and uh, can give you a very ethical view of uh, of uh, about economic decisions and and what's really going on in the world. I should add add one thing in defense of let's say the pure a priori approach. I'm a philosopher at heart. That's my training. That's what I teach. That's what I write. So of course I like some idealization and abstraction. I'm totally comfortable with that. But I think we should be careful and maybe explicit about what it is we want out of our hypotheses or statements and acknowledge when the scenarios that we're working within don't match up with the real world. And the farther they get from the world we encounter, social reality, uh, maybe we should be more modest about the claims we make and at least try, try to be very careful about what it is we want. D- did we want something that was useful to make good predictions to guide action? Or did we want something else? And it's totally fine to want something else. But then we should be clear that that's what we're after. Academic economists tend to not be very reflective about that, about whether their theories are supposed to be predictive or not, and the ways in which they're supposed to be useful. So, for example, famously macroeconomic variables are, are these things that can't actually be manipulated because they're aggregates. So you can't do experiments on them by manipulating a variable, a dependent or independent variable. And yet they play these critical roles in the dominant macro theories. So it's, it's not t- totally clear what's going on there. And economists tend to, uh, well, here, here's an opinion. They should talk to philosophers more to, uh, to think more carefully and maybe be a bit more troubled about what it is they're even up to. Now, this is something that the Austrians have done well. I think the Chicago School is good about this too, uh, having a higher order reflectivity about what's going on. Uh, but mainstream uh, econometricians, I'm afraid, are, are less good about that, in my experience. I think quickly, I'd like to just clarify here that I, I think we're, we're talking about uh, very, <laughs> I think there's a lot of agreement here with, without the, uh, you know, coming at it from slightly different approaches is, is fine. We're, we're definitely not trying to you know, poke at exactly like uh, kind of what you were saying. I, I get the feeling. Oh, no, poke, poke, please. You, you, po- poking I poke for a living. Anyway. I get poked for a living. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. That's the intro. Are, are, are you a poker player? I'm afraid not. I've never been very good at that. But I, I do like to ask annoying questions to my students. So that's what I mean by poking. That's my job is to ask annoying questions that make people think. And the, the one quick little thing I wanted to, to just say there is I, I, I get the feeling you're coming at this. Yeah. From, from different, uh, sides here. If, if the, if the praxeology bit is talking about, as you say, this kind of idealized world where we don't have any, uh, any interference from the, uh, everything is purely consensual, that sort of thing. But, but if you're dealing with, uh, economic theories uh, that, that are more reflective of the current state of the situation, I do think we need, we need both of those things. Absolutely. So I think that's, uh, that's my personal point of uh, agreement here anyway. Maybe we could return to the physics case. So you, you might want a, a physics case. You might want a, a theory of motion of physical objects that holds true for a perfectly smooth liquid where all objects move frictionlessly. Okay, that would be a cool theory. It might be it might be fun to construct. And yet, if we're sending rockets or building submarines, we might want a bit more. We might want friction in the theory. We might want things that aren't just liquids for objects to move through. We might even want to add relativity and move beyond Newtonian. 
So then if that's what you want to do, if you want to do something engineering, then you can't stick in your idealized Newtonian theory or, or even an extension of that. So uh, being clear about what it is you wanted to get out of the theory is very wise. Otherwise, you'd be frustrated along the way. That's my sense in physics and in econs. Yes, uh, all the parallels. So there's so much here. <laughs> you can feel it, right, Lou? This is like right up our alley. So, so uh, yeah, with physics... I'm intentionally there's... saying a few things that I know you guys will disagree with too because I, I looked at the book. Yeah, yeah I I there, are a few, there are a few things that are like, mm, not so sure about that. I think I might point this out. No, but, but I love that. Like devil's advocate thing is is perfect. Because you, you want the discussion, like you want to, you know, that there's so many things you agree on. So you want to find the little, little things uh, that you might disagree on. And then because we might get wiser if we, if we can, uh, you know, find, find a better way to think. So that's what, why we do these things. Today's show is brought to you by our sponsors. First up, Orange Pill app. Stack friends who stack sats, meet like-minded Bitcoiners near you and help speed up hyper-Bitcoinization with Orange Pill app. Bitcoin isn't an online-only phenomenon, and Orange Pill app helps facilitate the social layer, connecting Bitcoiners in their local area. It maintains your privacy through the whole process, and since you have to pay to access the app, you know that everyone there cares about Bitcoin and is high signal. A great new feature is events. You can create events and meetups right from the Orange Pill app and help build your local community while maintaining the Bitcoin-only signal. Orange Pill app is available on iOS and Android. Download now. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, an open source, non-custodial desktop wallet that is trustless, easy to use, and affordable. It has CoinJoin built in to facilitate your privacy. Every Bitcoin transaction leaves a clear footprint, but with Wasabi, you can make sure that others can't track your steps and threaten your sovereignty. Just send your coins to Wasabi Wallet, wait, and your coins will be private on the other end. It's open source, trustless by design, and non-custodial. You have full control over your keys. Check it out now at wasabiwallet.io. So speaking about physics, uh, it's uh, in physics, the, um, the, the thing about all empirical sciences is that they can, they can never represent uh, reality to, to the full extent. So the map can never be the th territory. Models are models, and like a perfect model of the universe would have to be the universe itself. So the model can never be the the, uh, the territory. And with a priori scientists, I think you have the opposite problem that they can never. You can you can uh, you can logically deduct that uh, two plus two equals four, and then you have two apples and two different apples, and it's up to the individual which. One may prefer Granny Smith apples to some other uh, pink lady apples or whatever, and they might not even be the same thing to a person. So you can say that in, not even mathematics can accurately represent a, a uh, subjective reality to a, a specific person. And neither can praxeology, by the way. So, so you have, you, you have these two a priori sciences and a posteriori sciences. They're good for different purposes, and and they they paint a picture of a different thing. But here comes the the kicker in this, and this is that Bitcoin, uh, as Gigi describes it, and I love this, uh, that it's it's the uh, it's the first instance of a a thing in the universe where the map defines the territory. So whatever happened on the time chain, 
is what defines what we define as truthful in in Bitcoin circles. That the the whole system is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Looks like interdependent or something. Like it's it it uh, it writes its own history, and we we accept that to be truthful because of how it functions and. So, so the map defines the territory. I, I can't really say it any better than that. Than that, the map defines it's, the territory. It's a Bitcoin. deep and puzzling idea, but it's it's amazing. I, I know the GGPs you're talking about, and GG is great on everything, of course. Yes, this in particular. Another way we might put the point is that Bitcoin's statements about itself are self-verifying. Exactly. So here's a statement: uh, the statement that's self-verifying is I'm speaking right now by making the statement. I verified or proven that it's true. And there, there are other kind of curious cases from the history of philosophy. Maybe um, I think, therefore I am, is another example of a self-verifying statement. Anyways, a, a money that's self-verifying where statements about the money are themselves what make those very statements true is a very strange and potent thing. And that's what Bitcoin is. You know, statements like this UTXO uh, is at this public address. Uh, well, that's a statement, and it's made true by that statement being there in that block. It, it, it's mind-blowing and weird. Yes, yes. And that's it, what Bitcoin gave us. Yeah, it turned everything upside down. Like, and you start, you were forced to to rethink everything after that. Uh, at least that's what happened to me. Like, I can't, I come from a background of uh, a lot of like mathematics and physics and stuff, and and uh, uh, you know, a posteriori thinking. Uh, but, but like th this, this thing has turned everything on its head, uh, in that sense, for sure. I noticed there's a chapter in, in, in the, uh, book file you sent us of, called Alchemy. And I haven't read it yet, but I, I have a chapter in my everything divided by 21 million book called Alchemy as well. So I'd, I'd love to pick your brain on, well, first of all, what's that chapter about? And, uh, let's see if it relates to, to my chapter somehow. You know, I, I read your book a while ago, but I forgot that there was a chapter named Alchemy. I should look at that and make sure that uh, if we need to cite you, we should be citing you and and uh, just uh, just pay attention to that. It's, it's good to know. I, it's, I totally it's forgot the one that. About element zero, uh, if if you're familiar with that idea, Bitcoin being okay. A, so I, a I, I think this element. is a very it's a very different idea. We're actually deleting part of that chapter from the book and the, the final script, but I'll, but I'll tell you the idea. I actually have a lecture on YouTube that develops this at, at some length. The thought to that chapter, or the, the puzzle is, what is the relationship between Bitcoin's design, its price, the market price of Bitcoin, the asset, and its adoption? And the thought is that Bitcoin is by design volatile because as a a, a vertical supply, you know, it's, it's supply curve is, is a straight up line. And given fluctuations in human psychology, that is fluctuations in demand, this predicts volatility in the buying power of Bitcoin. So you might think, and many economists would, that that's just a very bad thing for money to have, to have a vertical line as its supply curve. As it turns out though, Bitcoin was able to do something that no other private money has ever been able to do the way and with Bitcoin's other features, uh, which is to bootstrap to some significant scale. Now, how, how did that happen? So our, our basic theory is that Bitcoin 
is an alchemical device that turned volatility into adoption of freedom technology. So uh, maybe uh, another way of thinking about this is Alex Gladstein's uh, Trojan horse metaphor, where Bitcoin, uh, it looks like a number go up machine, but then inside is freedom. Similarly, a lot of cypherpunk technologies faced a problem of adoption. How do you get people to actually use them? Bitcoin's volatility made it an amazing device for speculation and for profit for those who bought early and who held. And what they, what they thought they were getting is just number go up. But in fact, what they got was freedom go up. So that's using Alex's terms there. And it turns out that one turned into the other. So that, that's the alchemical process. But that's the basic thought of the chapter. We develop it at some length. And uh, for anybody who's interested, there's a one hour YouTube video where I go into uh, maybe more detail than I ever should have about all this and uh, tell that story uh, with, with some empirical evidence and more. Yeah, but, but that's, uh, that sounds great. Like, uh, the, the, the way, the way I talk about it in, in the Everything Divided book is that central banking is basically successful alchemy. What successful alchemy would, would do to gold, uh, central banking is doing to the papers we, people mistake for, for gold. So if, if the alchemists had found a, a way of making gold out of cheaper base metals, that would have defeated the very thing that made gold valuable in the first place. So, so it's, it's a process that would have defeated its own purpose. And you, you can see if you, if you think that a dollar is redeemable for gold still, you can see that process happening because that is inflation, right? That's what's going on. If someone can print money without cost, then that's that type of money or type of currency loses its value over time and everyone's poorer for it. So, so uh, what, what the al alchemists should have been looking for is a, some element that has all the properties of gold, but just better. And I argue in the uh, chapter in the book that, that, uh, that is what Bitcoin did it, or uh, that the, the invention of Bitcoin was the discovery of such an element because you can view it as an element on the periodic table that has no mass at all. So there are no protons or neutrons. It's just electrons. Uh, but it does have other properties that other elements have, like uh, uh, electronegativity and resistance to destruction and stuff like that. So it's very hard to destroy, and it can bind electricity to it, uh, which is what proof of work is. So, so uh, an element without mass couldn't have a position in the universe either. So the theory is that the, whoever finds the hash of a Bitcoin block and can claim those, uh, claim the rewards has actually found, uh, the information about the element is the element. So when you found the information about the element, you found the element because the element is just that. It's just the information about it. So that's, that's what that chapter is about. And I, I don't know if that's very adjacent to your chapter, but I, I just found the similarity in chapter names to be intriguing. Indeed, maybe irresistible. Once you, once you think of an idea like alchemy is just a cool word, you have to use it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I saw you talk on, on Peter McCormack's show, uh, what Bitcoin did about. Oh, thank how, you. How, how money changes, uh, people's psychology and that money can can change people for the worse. 
And I immediately started thinking about my, uh, my grandfather's saying that I, I quote in the, um, in the book as well. And, uh, in some of my talks that, uh, uh, that which you can do without your own so that material things, uh, end up owning you. It's a flip side of that coin, really. And what, what I believe is that Bitcoin in being absolutely finite so that you know that as long as there's any, uh, as long as demand stays at least the same, its value, its purchasing power will go up over time. So no, you know that you have something. Uh, that's what you talked about, the inelastic supply there. And um, so you know that you, you're sitting on something that you that, that gets you closer to that philosophical insight, but stuff won't make you happy. So you won't be, the, the urge to just spend goes away to a large extent and you you start by prioritizing quality over quantity and you can see that in bitcoiners everywhere already so 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 i think the how how do you view that connection between inflation deflation and the urge to spend and time preference i, I guess time preference is where i'm getting at and is there such a thing as like ultimate time preference where you become a monk Basically, that, that don't crave material things at all because you have all the wealth you need in your head, in your 12 words. I think there are dangers for our flourishing in every direction. And we flourish when we manage to find the golden mean between those extremes. So here's one, one extreme, a spendthrift person who, and that, that's the opposite of being thrifty. It's uh, when money passes through your hands and you can't resist any new pleasure and you can't save and you're always grasping, wanting more. And when you get something new, a new toy, you tire of it very quickly. Maybe another word for that is consumerism. When we fall into that extreme, we're not happy. We don't flourish. Of course, there's another extreme too, where you hold onto money very tightly and where something might do you some good. But you think instead of the even better good it might do you tomorrow if you just held on to it a little bit longer. I think that's dangerous too. Now, into which danger are most people now more likely to fall? But what, what do you think? Definitely the consumer is danger. Uh, like they, people spend because they have no choice. They, they need to buy stuff because stuff keeps value better than the money does. Yeah, so I, I think it's a fair guess that structurally we have a system that creates incentives that push us towards that one vice. Bitcoiners react. And of course, we built a system that has very different structures and different incentives. It pushes us oh, in the opposite, opposite direction. Or like, I, I view it as the inverse of cloud world in a way. Like it's the inverse of consumerism. What Bitcoin offers us as a useful antidote to, let's say, the poisonous incentives around us that we might see in the money. That doesn't mean that it's a panacea or a cure-all, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't create at least the opportunity for vices of its own. I think excessive savings can be just as danger, dangerous for us as excessive consumerism. So uh, are, are we in danger of that? Most of us alive today, Pro probably not, but maybe something we're thinking about, should Bitcoin grow? Should Bitcoin become a global money? Is whether it creates incentives that engender vice of the other kind, of the grasping, uh, unable to spend, 
uh, and kind of the, the unhappiness that, that creates. There's a speculative okay. thought is that that's a possibility for Bitcoiners to think about, at least. So how does excessive spending in, an, in a, a commodity that is completely abstract and it's just information and numbers, how does that hurt anyone? I'm thinking of the harms here as falling to individuals rather than at the aggregate level. So I would be making an argument about aggregate demand or spending or aggregate saving. Rather, this is about what your own attitude does to your own heart. And I think, and to your own happiness accordingly. And the thought here is that a money that encourages you to save could push you in the direction, not of the one vice of consumerism, but of its opposite vice, which is excess in the other direction, excessive savings, where we're unable to even spend money. And you know, what is money for? Money is for spending. Uh, to do the very thing that it's, that the, that this technology is created to do. And yet we grasp and we hold on to it instead of uh, enjoying the fruits of our labor. Both of these would be dangerous extremes to fall into. So you don't think Buddhist monks who own nothing are happy? Is that like, I think they could, I think they, many of them could be happier by owning more. Yeah, that's I'm thinking of happiness here, not just as subjective well-being. It's not just good feelings, but we can measure it or think of it as uh, just overall flourishing. Yeah. So, uh, this is, this is a, an Aristotelian idea. This is a very old idea that, that happiness is about uh, something much deeper and that lasts across an entire life rather than just momentary good feelings of pleasure. Yeah, the, count, the counter to that would be, is happiness even an end in itself or is it something that you discover along the way to pursuing higher order ends like generational wealth? Mm. I think it could be both. I think we seek happiness and we properly seek happiness for its own sake. And yet happiness is also useful as a tool to achieve other ends too. So happier people, people who are flourishing both in subjective and non-subjective ways might be more effective at offering comfort to their loved ones, at supporting businesses and productively making goods that people actually want and that satisfy other people's needs and desires. Flourishing people might be better at all of that. So that, that shows that happiness or flourishing for them is an instrumental good. But it's also a final good. It's useful or it's good, not because it's useful, but because of just what it is itself. So I think it's, it's both. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that makes it so precious. Uh, the, the highest goods we know of tend to be like that. They are both valuable for their own sake and as tools to achieve other goods as well. Hmm. What do you think? Oh, you yeah. look suspicious. No, no, I'm just trying to, uh, to, to compare this to how, how this relates to my own life and before and after Bitcoin, because I view myself as scoring higher on all of those metrics that you lined up there, more productive, more loving, more all, all of this stuff. Uh, and a better friend now that you uh, and a better friend. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And less consumerist for sure. Like I, I don't crave as much stuff and it's, it's not because I, uh, like, the thing Bitcoin did to me, like, I think even calling it money is sort of misrepresentative of what it is, because the way I see it, it's an agreement between people on a fixed set of rules that allows us to interact with one another in a specific way by having 
an abstract number in the back of our heads. Uh, and, and uh, if you start viewing it that way instead, and that every interaction is a trade, uh, the, 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 the thing that Bitcoin brings you is, uh, self-confidence and, and, you know, I, I, um, I know that I will, I will be fine, uh, because I have this secret, I have these words, I have this whatever. So uh, having an extra, you know, parachute or, or uh, extra airbag for, for unforeseen uh, situations can, can uh, bring you a, into a state of, you know, wh where you trust yourself more and where you're able to, to do more things because of it. Uh, so I think it's uh, that aspect of it, how it changes us, with, uh, how it changes our minds and how it makes us uh, more confident in our abilities. That's a, a very underrated aspect of, of, of what this thing does to people. I think a lot of outsiders would think that you become a Bitcoiner, you have some Bitcoin and you hodl, that you've added risk to your life. Those of us who've done it long enough and who've thought about it deeply enough and who've integrated it in just the way you suspected, we actually know something a little bit different. In fact, Bitcoin eliminates some risks and allows us to take on with confidence other risks and better manage risk. So for example, I'm always at risk of being canceled. I say silly things online. Someday I'm going to say something that somebody doesn't like and they may try to harm me because of that. I accept that that's a real risk. And yet, even if they manage to shut down my bank accounts, even if they manage to confiscate all sorts of other property I have or deprive me of my livelihood, you know what? I got some Bitcoins and I'll be okay. So I, I'm actually able to manage that risk better by adding Bitcoin to my life. So you might have thought that it just adds risk, but no, 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 dude, it does so much more than that. Now, this is something that I, I believe is understudied, the individual psychological effects of Bitcoin on long-term holders. It's something that we say a lot and we see, I think, anecdotal evidence, whether in our own hearts or in those of our friends, and yet hasn't been studied very carefully. I'd love to see no. a long-term uh, look at that. Does hodling actually change people's time preference and their behavior in other realms? That'd be pretty cool to find out. Yeah, I see. I see tons of evidence of this happening in in um, in real Bitcoiners. But, but then again, this you and I is, know these people, but yeah, but this is not that's not a proper study. That's no, no, uh, no. and I think it's it can't be communicated or, or transmitted the way you know a proper psychological write up about this could. Yeah, I'd, I'd uh, love to see that. It'd be a tricky study to like. What do you even? How do you even measure these things? And like, do you, do you put out like questionnaires or how does the studies even function? Like, it's kind of hard to tell. And uh, uh, and I think this space has a, a history of being uh, confused with other cryptocurrencies that absolutely do nothing for for time preference. They they do the opposite, and they're all risky. It's even hard to tell who's what. What even is a Bitcoiner? Like, how do you define the word? Uh, is it someone who holds Bitcoin? Like, or uh, well, what's a shitcoiner then? Well, someone who holds shitcoins. Well, do you include fiat or not? Like, it's it's hard to tell where 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 the where you draw the line in a in a uh, transitionary period such as the one we're living in now. So so I I think. Uh, such I wouldn't a study know how to be hard. I wouldn't know how uh, to design it, but I'd love to see an expert do so. Yeah, D yeah, it would be interesting for sure.
since we didn't, uh, we we kind of just dove right in. Uh, can you give us just a little bit of of a background and how you got to be a philosophy professor in Singapore, that sort of thing? Certainly. I was a philosophy major in college at first, not even really by choice. It was it was kind of by accident. I just sought a list of majors, and my dad wanted me to be a history major. I selected philosophy because it wasn't one he wanted. And I, I knew just a little bit about it. I had read Descartes and I liked to argue online on old school message boards from the mid nineties onwards. So I spent a lot of time thinking and arguing and philosophy is basically thinking and arguing. But my goal was to be an attorney. Uh, no, and it isn't. There we go. <laughs> We're all philosophers here. <laughs> or I, I couldn't resist. That's, that's not an argument. You're just denying what I said. You know, the old argument clinic. Yes, yes. Uh, that was what I was thinking no, about. I love that. <laughs> Arguing isn't just contradiction. Yes, it that's is. It. That's the, that's, there's the laugh. <laughs> so I always wanted to become an attorney and make a heap of money. And sometime along the way there, I discovered that a philosophy had gotten into my brain and it just wasn't going away. And I wanted to get to the bottom of these questions. And perhaps providentially now, you know, you look backwards and you can tell a story about your life that you couldn't have told at the time. You didn't really understand what was happening to uh, perhaps providentially now. I missed my law school admissions exam. I was fighting with my girlfriend the night before. We stayed up all night and there's no way I'm staying up till seven in the morning and then taking a test at 9 a.m. that will determine which law school I get to go to and whether I'll have a good career. But I just didn't do it. But then the question was, okay, well, what, what will I do? So I thought, okay, well, do a PhD in philosophy. And I did. And my best friend in grad school had lived in Singapore as a kid. So he recommended it highly. And when a job came up that was in Singapore, I, I, I simply had to apply. Got the job, got tenure, taught a bunch of different stuff over the years from Indian or Chinese to European philosophy. But around 2016, 2017, started thinking deeply about money. And I already had Bitcoin had been thinking about Bitcoin for a couple of years by then. But by then, my students were also thinking about Bitcoin and really wanted to talk about money. So I designed a philosophy of money class. And then I was asked to lead our PPE major, philosophy, politics, economics. And that put me in touch with economists and other social scientists and really changed the way I think. And now I'm focused a great deal on Bitcoin. I teach classes on it. I read and write about it. And it's kind of consumed the rest of my teaching and research career. Uh, and perhaps both of you know what this is like. It starts as a side interest and moves closer and closer to the middle. And I think for some people, they might think of that as narrowing. But for me, it was the opposite. It was an expansion of interests because Bitcoin includes everything. You have to think about the whole of our social world and things about the physical world too, because it's proof of work and about cryptography and mathematics and uh, institutions and, and more. So uh, I've been blessed to have a career that's allowed me to, to expand in that way, expand by narrowing. Bitcoin is my life now, and I love it. There's a really long rambling answer, but uh, maybe no, that's what you want one. <laughs> Expand by narrowing, that sounds very much like the title of Yoni's book, Abundance to, Through Scarcity. That's, that's what uh, Bitcoin there is. There right? you go. So Bitcoin offers us, oh, I don't know. What is it? No, I, I'm not going to try to riff a new one. I'll just, yeah, yeah. These, these are good phrases. Yeah, they, they really are. 
all right, you, you're, you, we have mutual friends. You're a friend of our friend, Troy Cross, I believe. Yeah, he's Troy also, and I go back. Yeah, he's also a philosophy professor. Like, uh, uh, when, when and where did you meet him? And you're, it, it, was that during the philosophy school years or where? I was probably a graduate student when we first met in 2011, or maybe I was a postdoc in 2012. We'd certainly met by 2012. And we saw each other at a few conferences. But I had seen Troy for years. We always had this connection because we have some weird things in common from our past. And we'd worked in similar areas in analytic philosophy. So we had, you know, a hundred friends in common, a bunch of intellectual interests in common. And we both went to small Christian colleges in our youth. So lots of weird convergences in our Venn diagrams. But in maybe 2020, I became much more public about being a Bitcoiner. And I still have a screenshot of when Troy messaged me. He's like, Andrew, what, what is this? You're a Bitcoiner too. What? We, we have to talk. We have to talk about this. And so we've been uh, even faster friends ever since. Troy's a treasure for philosophy, for his students, for Bitcoin, for humanity. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big a, fan. We had a great conversation with him uh, here on the show. And uh, I was fortunate enough to, to be with him for uh, an entire week on Madeira and then subsequently Lisbon, where I remember we had long walks and just talked and talked and talked. And it's like, yeah, treasure troll. Yeah. He's a peaceful highly of you. That, that's why oh, I that wanted warms, to come on the show. That warms my heart a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you can you maybe go into a little bit about uh, one one item you've collaborated on and I knew about it. This was one of the first things I I looked into of Troy's was was your uh, combined paper uh, like resistance money resistance money.com slash green goes to this paper I think right um, that uh, resistance dot money slash green yeah right there we go yeah yeah, yeah that's it yeah can, can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and a little bit about the yeah the the environmental angle uh, in your thinking. I'm trying to remember uh, who's Mr. Wonderful. I'm blanking his name. Kevin. Um, Kevin O'Leary. Kevin O'Leary. That's the guy. Oh, I, I'll actually, I'll start with a funny Kevin O'Leary story. In January, or maybe it was December, there was a leak of celebrity phone numbers. And I was one of the first people to see it. So within minutes, I had gotten the database and I looked up and I just saw Kevin O'Leary. So I called him. And I told him I had a few thoughts about what he'd been saying about Bitcoin recently. And of course, he just hung up on me. But I have spoken to Kevin O'Leary on the phone. <laughs> there's, there's my Kevin O'Leary story. But in maybe January of 2021 or so, he started getting on shows and appearing on stages at crypto conferences and in general being a nuisance on Twitter, promoting this idea that Bitcoin's environmental problem in particular emissions stemming from uh, scope two emissions associated with mining could be solved by introducing a new token, a green token, a clean token, and that we should no longer buy or trade or sell or have anything to do. Don't even touch the bloody tokens. And this drove me and Troy absolutely nuts. First of all, it breaks fungibility to think of Bitcoins as coming in different colors like this. Uh, this is not colored coins in op returns. No, no, no. This, this is different UTXOs being labeled as good and bad based on what block, uh, they're, 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 they find their origins in, uh, Bitcoin, uh, because of the way that UTXOs get burned when they're spent, 
it's not as though you can always trace it back anyways to a given block where a certain Bitcoin came from. So it's bad engineering, bad ethics, bad idea. And yet he was finding an audience for this. People wanted to find a way to own Bitcoin without incentivizing emissions associated with any mining. How could you do it? And Troy had the key insight required here, which is, well, what if, what if all mining was green? Okay, so start from that scenario. Well, there'd be no emissions. So just define green as zero emissions mining. It's all energy that whoever's looking at this, it's by their own lights, green energy and totally morally a-okay. Okay, so that, that's a case to start with. Well, how could we get there and how could I assure that I have done my part to get there? The, th the thought in our paper, and we go into this in much more detail and actually develop it with some rigor, is that you could do this and you could, let's say, wash your hands of emissions associated with mining. The percentage of the total amount of Bitcoins you own as a percentage of the total amounts in existence, uh, that's... Uh, that's how many of them that should be green. Like that's, that's the, uh, uh, that's the theory, right? That, that's how much green mining you should subsidize. And yeah, if you've exactly. done that, you've done your part. You yes. cleaned up your part of the network. And I know some Bitcoiners don't want to talk about clean or green or environment FUD or any like this. So this is not for you. This is for the Bitcoiners who do care about that and who do want to do their part. And we show how they can do that in a way that perfectly balances the incentive to mine created by their holding Bitcoin against the loss to miners when you subsidize green mining and basically drive the non-green miners out of business so, or lower their okay. margins. I love that you bring this up because I have, I've had problems with the theory and uh, since I first heard it from Troy. So, so, so if I get it right, what you're saying is that the, uh, you should mine, uh, you should have uh, this, the same percentage of the hashing power as the percentage you, uh, your stack is of the total amount of Bitcoins. Yes. And it should all come from green energy. So the, the thing is that there's, a, there's actually a deeper extension of the theory, uh, which we go to another paper called Mine Your Values. So maybe we can yeah. talk about that later. But uh, yeah, yeah. green is, is one application of the idea, but there, there's a cypherpunk yeah, yeah. application too. Yeah, and there could be like fair trade or whatever, like you could mine from a region of the world where. Anyway, that you the 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 problem I have with introducing a an additional incentive structure is that what does that do to the game theory of the thing? So, like, what if, is if, the additional uh, incentive that's added? Can we just get get precise about that? Yes. So, so how, how would you get people to do this? You, you, there are two ways. You could either you could, uh, convince them to do it or you could force them to do it. And as long I don't as like you're, that second one, that sounds pretty bad. No, as long as it's the first one, it's fine. Uh, because then it's, it's made by choice. But if you get into regulation and, and, uh, all of that stuff and that laws around mining, and that miners should be subsidized by some state authority for doing for this or that behavior. That will like a subsidy on, on a specific type of mining 
is to some extent at least screwing with the uh, with the uh, uh, incentives of the network and the game theory, and it's a delicate system, so we should be very careful to tamper with it. And yeah, but this is an argument for people to run their own nodes and 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 mine where mind where the 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 coins come from uh and make ethical choices of their own but but the thing is uh, uh we do not favor it. state intervention of any kind on this and when we say subsidize we just mean people paying miners to mine the way they want them to mine that's all all right so that's yeah. that's the subsidy in question could i give you a maybe a yeah. model or a way to think about this like one question you might have is Okay, we're not talking about forcing people to do this, and it's not tax-funded subsidies. This is all nonsense. That's that's a non-starter, in my view. Excellent. Then we're so then on the same page do here. This? Who would do this and why? Let me give you an example of the kind of firm that might do this and why, or the kind of individual. Let's say you're a firm that wants exposure to Bitcoin. For whatever reason, you want exposure to Bitcoin's price. But you also have, and I'm going to use a, a naughty phrase, e an ESG mandate. Built into yes. your charter and the people who have added money to your fund, they want you to not be increasing scope two emissions. They don't want you to be polluting or to be doing this, that, or the other thing. So oh. you, you have built into your corporate charter limitations on what kinds of stuff you can buy or hold in trust for others. Let's say you're, you're a money managing firm, say, you know, the capital group or BlackRock or something like that. So you, you might have a mandate that prevents you from doing that first thing you want to do. You want Bitcoin exposure. And yet your analysts tell you that by holding Bitcoin in your balance sheet, not selling it, you are artificially increasing the price of Bitcoin. That, that's what holding does, right? It removes liquidity from the order books. And so the price goes up or at least doesn't go down when you hold. So holding creates an incentive which boosts the price of Bitcoin. And what does the price of Bitcoin ultimately do? Well, it entices miners to mine. And it makes mining more profitable. So in holding Bitcoin, you have this indirect line of cause and effect that encourages miners of all kinds. And you might worry that, well, because we're encouraging mining of any kind at all, by holding Bitcoin on the balance sheet, we have indirect causal responsibility and thus moral responsibility for emissions, scope to emissions from mining. Okay, so this is a totally normal setup that a money manager might have or an asset manager. They got these two competing things. They got analysts telling them Bitcoin's dirty with a kind of sensible story, causal story for how you contribute to the dirt by owning Bitcoin. And yet you want to own Bitcoin. Here's what they should do. They should go buy Bitcoin. Yes. And let's say they bought a million Bitcoins, you know, one over 20 of the total Bitcoins there are. Then they should greenly mine one out of 20 of the total hash rate. And then what, what they've done is they've eliminated or counterbalanced the incentive to mine that they created by doing yeah. that very mining themselves. So why would somebody want to do this? It's because they want to own Bitcoin, but their charter won't let them or their own personal ethics won't let them. So yeah, but there's, there's a, a voluntary scenario where it doesn't require state intervention, where somebody has a very good reason to do this. I, I said, I'd say that there's still some state intervention going on there, though, on the individual level of the owners of that company or the, the, the stockholders of like whoever the ESG narratives and whoever sets the rating and all of that stuff that comes from the stage first and foremost, like the, the reason that people 
care so much about this is not because they've done their homework and because they're uh, they're DIY climate scientists. It's because the TV told them there's a problem. So so that that so that's that's the thing. I think it's impossible to to like I- introduce any type of agenda into this without making it political. Uh, then again, I think the system is robust enough to to. Uh, to be attacked from that vector. I don't really be- believe, believe it to be an attack vector. There was something else you said as well that uh, I've forgotten now, but there was something else I reacted to that that is something. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll speak again when it pops into my mind. There was something. Well, I'm sure uh, there's more than one thing I said that you, you found dubious. No, no, not dubious, but because I, I, I get the theory and I, I, I think it, it sounds very nice and it's a very... It's a very nice frame. Like, if you do want to be environmentally friendly, that that's a very, that's a very good way of looking at it because you have made up for your footprint, whatever that means. So you can get your freedom footprint and your zero. You you have your one your one hundred percent freedom footprint and the zero percent carbon footprint if you do that, and that's a good thing, I guess. I like freedom, and I like people freely choosing to have a carbon neutral existence. That's what they want. I like to give them tools to do so. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, uh, and if they don't? Well, I might try to persuade them to do so if I'm in a position yeah. to, to be persuasive, but that's not really my life mission. No. I, I, that's, just, that's not my job. I think Troy's more interested in that than I am, than persuading people to reduce uh, carbon emissions associated with their life. From what I understood from Troy, he's not he's not uh, particularly focused on on climate science either. Like, I mean, he's a philosopher first and foremost, and uh, that's not his area of expertise. Or, or but but it is an interesting theory. It sure is. Again, I think we're back to that. Your your uh, the the tools and the framing is is very practical uh, for for. The situation right now, the the ESG and and all this, and uh, I, I guess um, part of the difficulty in the uh, practicalities of taking control over uh, green mining or or subsidizing or whatever you you call it is that there aren't really uh, too many practical ways to do that. It's possible to to of course have someone buy their own miners and. It's it's possible to to get your miners hosted in a, a green facility, something like that. But but they're not nearly as straightforward as as uh, well. Say just buying Bitcoin or uh, ignoring the whole the whole situation. So have you seen any kind of uptick in in ways that this could be fulfilled in a in a practical way for individuals who might not have the resources to to uh, take control over mining resources? There are a few. Unfortunately, they all have trade-offs and some Bitcoiners will find some of those trade-offs unacceptable. So I'll, I'll give an example. There are green Bitcoin mining operations where you can either buy green hash rate or you can buy a mining rig and have them host it for you. And then you know how much hash rate you're subsidizing and you can calculate how much you've offset of your holdings. So that's all well and good. Now, here's something Bitcoiners won't like about it. It's what Satoshi said long ago. The problem is the trust. And we know what happens when you trust hosted miners. They F you over. Compass did this. 
Now, there are some green Bitcoin miners like Iris or SAS, a firm that I've invested in myself, where you know, we, we hope that we can trust them. There's no guarantees there. So for more cypherpunk-minded Bitcoiners who really want to minimize trust, asking someone else to do your green mining for you, buying green hash rate, whether through security, offering, or, or something else like that, that just could be a non-starter. You can't do it anonymously either or pseudonymously. So those cypherpunk types, the, the true mountain men, they need to go buy a plot of land in Idaho sitting on top of a stream and put a little turbine on that stream and mine Bitcoin themselves or a solar farm in West Texas, whatever it takes. Now for large firms, they don't have those cypherpunk values. In fact, they tend to have already given up the game because they don't take self-custody. Coinbase or BitGo or Prime Trust or somebody else does their custody for them. And they're perfectly willing to trust someone else. So a firm like that, let's say, uh, pardon me, uh, BlackRock, uh, if, if they help Bitcoin, might be totally comfortable with uh, trusting someone else to do the green Bitcoin mining for them. You asked about something very practical. It's like, okay, uh, is there something individuals can do? Uh, you can buy shares in green mining firms, uh, both in private, public markets. In some cases, you can buy green hash rate directly. But these things aren't super convenient. And they don't map on exactly very nicely to the model that Troy and I give. So we're, Troy is working on that and trying to convince miners to offer green hash rate uh, in various uh, forms that make it attractive and usable for a variety of different kinds of users. Uh, but this, this is a work in progress. You said the, the profitability of mining goes up when price goes up. And this is true for mining overall, but it's not, true yes. for the, it's not necessarily true for the individual miner. Because the individual miner still has to compete with the increase in the hash rate. So there's always an equilibrium there. And the more miners that are online in total, the, the smaller the margin. So like all miners are, are like mining is a, uh, it's, it's very much, a, uh, what would you say? Uh, the, an embodiment of the law of diminishing returns is in that sense, like the, 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 the returns are diminishing, uh, as, as the more miners come online as, and as the, uh, the, the, the thing gets more useful. And, and there's nothing else quite like it. Saying that it is perfectly competitive is what, that's what some people might say to express this, but I think that kind of understates just how perfectly competitive mining is because of the fixed yeah. rewards. Yeah. You can actually make somebody else's profits go down and make their, their block rewards go down by acquiring some block rewards yourself. That is not true of gold. No. I can't make you mine less gold in South Africa by mining more myself in California. And yet you can with Bitcoin. So you can F with your competition in pretty serious ways in Bitcoin that are not possible basically in, in anything else we know. No, and, and even stranger, you, you can... You can lose your competitiveness and your rewards go down, but your purchasing power still goes up. <laughs> yes, yes. Highly yeah. sensitive to the market yeah. price of the commodity, uh, which is more volatile than many others. So yeah. this is fundamentally a strange thing. Yeah, it is. It, it's uh, the most abstract and the most real thing simultaneously. Yeah, concrete does not mean real.
abstract things can be real too. As a philosopher, I very much believe this. Yes. I read Plato long ago and I've always been convinced ever since. Abstract yes. things are just as real, sometimes more so. So there's a hot take for you. Yeah, uh, I think therefore I am, uh, is often taken to be the, the, the only true statement we can ever make. Or is it Schopenhauer? Who, who is it? It's Descartes. Descartes, of course, Rene Descartes. So, uh, uh of course, um, uh, just, uh, the, I've heard that it has been revised to a, a slightly different version by some philosophers. I think, therefore, some thinking is going on somewhere. What's your position on that? <laughs> to go deep into philosophy here. When What's Buddhists it? encounter Descartes' cogito, it's called the cogito in Latin, uh, cogito, I think. So that, that little argument, or maybe it's not an argument, it's a self-verifying statement that we can extract some philosophy from. When Buddhists encounter it, what you just said is tends to be their reaction. They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You think... Yes, but does it follow that there is something that is doing that thinking? No, no, you can't say that. What you can say is that there is thinking and that's it because Buddhists don't believe in the self. So they find that argument fully uh, unpersuasive. That at most, it shows that there is thought, not that there are thinkers. Now, myself, I believe in myself and I believe that I think I'm not a Buddhist. So I don't have to be that skeptical about myself. But the reaction you just gave is a classical Buddhist reaction to that style of argument. At least you think you do, uh, but that's right. So, um, all right. Another philosophical Unshakable axiom, my dude. Unshakable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic starting point, isn't it? So, okay. Uh, this is not related at all, but it's philosophical all the, uh, all the same. Um, if we live in a simulation, would the, would Bitcoin mining uh, slow down the simulation at one point because it takes up so much computing power and you couldn't fake it. And if so, would we feel the slowdown in our, uh, while we're doing the thinking that is going on somewhere? This is the stupidest question I ever no, asked anyone on any pod, by the way. So like, <laughs> probably. There, there's something really deep here about the relationship between proof of work and the rules of physics. And your question touches on that. So a lot of cryptography that we rely on turns out to rely on the relationship between mathematics and physics. So for example, it looks like given that relationship as it actually is, you can't do prime factorization. Uh, it's very expensive to do prime factorization. So if somebody has done that, then you know that they've done a lot of work. Okay. So that, that's just like the fundamental idea of proof of work. Now here's... Yes question I've puzzled over, and this, and this will bring us back to your, your scenario is, uh, my, my question is, is that link between mathematics and physics contingent or necessary? Does it have to be that prime factor, that factoring primes is computationally expensive or not? Could there be beings for whom that is computationally cheap? Whatever their minds are made of, whatever kinds of things they are, could it be that for them, they can just do it instantly the way that you and I can do sums? with very small numbers instantly. One and one is what? <laughs> it's another yeah, prime yeah. number. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, can do, we can do some kinds of arithmetic, very low cost. Now, could there be beings that do that? Now, if so, 
then their simulation, so they could be running a simulation in the, let's say that either their minds or their computers, which uh, operate by those rules, could simulate proof of work without that proof of work overwhelming the system. But proof of work could actually still do exactly what we need it to do inside the simulation because we don't obey their rules at the, the meta level. The simulation has different physics. The simulation has a physics where it is linked to mathematics and we're doing certain things, driving certain results, is indeed proof that you've done certain physical work. Yes. So uh, the, the, this is a long way of saying uh, proof of work can still do everything we need it to Bitcoin. And yet it could be that proof of work outside that simulation wouldn't work because there are different kinds of creatures who have different minds, different kinds of computation and where the physics math rules and the connection uh, is different than it is inside the simulation. That's I'm just making young, this up as I go. Yeah, yeah. But I, I love the idea. But I love, I love that answer. It's a perfect answer. Like, and would those beings, yeah, one, one thing about them could be that they experience time differently than us. That could be the key to, to coming up with prime numbers faster. And also, would their leader be called Optimus Prime? Ah, oh, that's a stupid question too. Uh, of course he would. Like I can't Optimus think of a clever Prime. reply. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, having, having a different relationship to time would be one way to do it. Uh, a different relationship to space as well. I'm thinking of the movie Arrival. Have you seen that? Like, uh, they, you know, they I never have. I'm the sort of person who totally should have seen it. I know what it is. I know what it's about. I just never saw yeah. it. It's just about that, like uh, communication and the relation to time. Uh, and it's not really about aliens, but that's a different story. <laughs> and, and language, right? This yeah, language. Thing. Yeah. So communication. I guess that's and what you mean, communication. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So I'm now imagining creatures that can do super tasks. So let's say within, they have one second to do a task. And within the first half second, they do the task and then they speed up. And the second, the next quarter second, they do that task over again. In the next eight second, they do the task again. Uh, how many tasks could they do in a one second interval? As many as they liked. So if you could accelerate in that way, that would be a weird way of relating to time. And if time wasn't quantized, if it was continuous enough to allow there to be that many tasks, then uh, these creatures could do things in, in, in small amounts of time that would take us long periods of time. Of course, they need a different relationship to energy as well. Maybe we can dream that up too. Yeah, this this is this this is wild. <laughs> yes, we're well beyond what we know when we know what we're talking about. Nobody knows what they're talking about when we talk about this. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, but it's fun though, isn't it? Um, um, yeah, I, I tend to be the, the yeah pull, pull us pull us back in kind of uh, kind of guy uh, when needed, but. Uh, I, I actually wanted to pull this all back into uh, the 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 main point of your your book, the thesis. The the um, as I as I understand it from the from the parts that I read, it's well, a philosophical case for Bitcoin is the the, the subline or or close to the subline. What is the conclusion? What is the philosophical case for Bitcoin that you that you argue in in resistance money? One of the problems with building a case for or against Bitcoin is that our biases play against us. The biases of those who have Bitcoin, the biases of those who knew about it long ago, said some false things about it, and then saw a number continue to go up and they panic. Lots of different biases. Those are two examples. So one of the things we do is to try to develop a framework that allows us to assess Bitcoin 
with some independence from those biases. And obviously, in a way, this is impossible, but it's something that we should strive to do, and it can be very helpful. So our thought is we should ask whether we would want there to be a world with Bitcoin if we didn't know who we would be. So imagine you know everything about the world that you know. You know about the ways that our institutions succeed, the ways they fail us. You know about the distribution of wealth, of resources, of energy. You know about the limitations on time. You know how proof of work works. You know all that stuff about the world, but you don't know who you are. So you're sort of looking out all these faces, seven, eight billion people. And when you wake up, you're going to be one of them, but you don't know who. Now you might wake up to be uh, who's a rich guy who hates Bitcoin, Charlie Munger. In which case, you have no need for Bitcoin, and maybe you don't even want there to be Bitcoin. I mean, Charlie doesn't. He hates Bitcoin. But let's say that there's a chance that you could be Roya Maboub, or Edward Snowden, or Alexei Navalny, or another dissident in Russia, or someone trying to escape with their family's wealth from North Korea, or an ordinary American who is distressed about the expansion of the dollar's monetary supply. Okay, there are many different people that, that actually want and need Bitcoin. And if you don't know which one you'll be, then I think your judgment is a little bit different about whether it's better to have a world with Bitcoin or without. So the fundamental of argument, argument of our book isn't that Bitcoin makes the world better. It's that if you didn't know who you'd be and you remove those kinds of personal biases, you'd want a world with Bitcoin because it's the best way to deal with the risks that beset, especially the least well-off among us, those of us who actually need it. And so it's totally consistent with that thesis that some people don't need Bitcoin. Charlie Munger does not need Bitcoin. That's fine. It's not for him. It's Bitcoin's for criminals. Bitcoin's for people in the margins. Bitcoin's for weirdos. Bitcoin's for people who are persecuted by institutions, public and private. Not for Charlie Munger. And once you see that, then I think you can see the value of Bitcoin in the world, even if it isn't like some utilitarian calculus making the world better off overall or better for me individually. So that's the philosophical part of our case for Bitcoin is this abstraction device. And then we go through various dimensions and think about, okay, along privacy, along monetary institutions, censorship resistance, and financial inclusion. Uh, does Bitcoin, is Bitcoin uh, choice worthy uh, in those dimensions if you didn't know who you'd be? So that's kind of the master argument of the book. And then those are the, the four dimensions that, that get into details. That's a very nice way of framing it. But my instant thought there is like, who is Bitcoin for? Like if Bitcoin is for the minorities now and, and for people in developing countries and people who want to flee with their money, and as you say, for criminals uh, that are labeled criminals for one reason or another. Some criminals are good. Some criminals are bad. Exactly. It depends on the law they've broken. And like, That's right. Uh, bad. It's good to break bad laws. We forget yeah. this sometimes. Martin yeah. Luther King was a convicted criminal. Yes. Uh, yeah, criminal according to who? And uh, if there's no victim, is there really a crime? That's another philosophical question. But the question I was getting at, well, like, who is Bitcoin for a hundred years from now? I don't think we know. It's a great question. Pretty speculative. Now, yeah. here's the hopeful thought, at least from a Bitcoiner, everyone. Yes. I'm not sure that uh, myself, but I, I suspect that's the answer you would uh, allude to. No, well, 
I, I would at least hope that it's for more people than what it is right now. And I think it will be. Uh, you know, I, I think there's still a positive case for Bitcoin, even if it never grows beyond its current user base. Yes. Yeah. Bitcoin is still, it, we don't need to speculate about the good things it might do for the world later. We already know it has done and is doing good things in the world for yeah. those that do need it. It's a niche it, money. It provides and yet it's still doing good. It provides people with optionality that they otherwise wouldn't have, regardless of where they, what situation they find themselves in, that you have more optionality and that that's really what money is about in the first place, more optionality. Bitcoin gives a very peculiar kind of optionality too. And this is something I didn't really understand until I wrote the chapter on this. It's institutional optionality. So think about the price you have to pay to change institutions. Let's say you're frustrated with the way that banks run, the way that churches run, the way that schools run, the laws. You have to basically move, in many cases, move countries. That is very expensive. And given the way immigration is structured in our world now, impossible for most people alive today. It is not a live option to move to a different country. And so to change or to leave broken institutions, they must do something either impossible or very, very costly to leave behind everything that they know and that they love. Okay, so that's that's what we're stuck with, with institutions. Now, here's a peculiar kind of institution, Bitcoin. It's a new kind of monetary institution that is not a central bank, and it isn't even a private bank. It's something totally new. You can opt into this institution without moving. You can opt into this institution without paying a high price. All you got to do is launch your note or buy some Bitcoin or have a friend who's done the same. So it's it's a very unique kind of optionality. It's institutional optionality. In addition to the optionality that just having money gives you, namely the option of buying stuff without the interference of others. So censorship resistance from a censorship resistant money gives you that kind of optionality. But there's something deeper too. It's the ability to choose a new monetary institution. And that's just wild and amazing to me that Bitcoin has given that to the world. And even if it does nothing else for us, it'll do a heck of a lot of good just by giving us that. I know I'm preaching yeah, the choir now. So yeah, uh, but on a philosophical level, there what I immediately start thinking about is like the Bitcoin network. We we talk about it as this network of nodes, and we think the nodes are the computers, and we think the miners are the specific computers that do that, and we think about it in terms of software and stuff. But no, it's the people. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, Institutions are made of right. people. Yes, but but also like. If you know a Bitcoiner, maybe you haven't touched the network in any other way than you just, you're friends with a Bitcoiner. You can, by proxy, utilize that person's Bitcoins. <laughs> so yeah. are you, is everyone part of the Bitcoin network? Because we all have a Kevin Bacon number and we're all connected. Like, uh, like, so would you call a, the best friend or like the mother or the, the, the kids of a Bitcoiner that are not yet old enough to understand any of it, are they Bitcoiners? Like, they are connected to the Bitcoiner. So, and this is the, the funny thing about economics in general. There's no such thing as a circular economy. It's all square. Well, no, it's all, uh, it, it, everyone's connected to it. Uh, mm. Closed systems are rare. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and I think that's, that's a thing. 
to think about when we think about Bitcoin, we often talk about it as a closed system. And there's a lot of talk about circular economies and, and the network as this specific thing. But uh, we forget that economics is about everyone. Uh, absolutely everyone. We're all interconnected. And uh, yeah, the node is the person. And so maybe it would be useful to have a degreed notion of connectedness to yeah. the Bitcoin Here. network. Yeah. Yeah. So other people, some people have direct and fully degree to, to degree one uh, connectedness and yeah. others have degree 0.5 or 0.25. And it might well be that most people alive today have a non-zero degree of connectedness to Bitcoin. This, the, this might, uh, we might actually come up with some uh, novel idea here. Think of it as the Kardashian scale, but on a, uh, but not referring to intergalactic civilizations, but just to the Bitcoin network and how connected you are to it. Like you, you run your own node, uh, then you're like Bitcoin Kardash scale, um, uh, the, well, whatever the highest number is, zero is no connection at all. And one is, you know, a Bitcoiner and two is like, you have some Bitcoin and three is you run a node or something like that. Or your three might be, you have a hardware wallet or you, you have run Bitcoin core, but would there be a use case for such a, such a scale? Is this something to pursue? Maybe it's just, I think it's just kind yeah. of fun. Yeah, probably not. But if anyone wants to pursue that idea, here it is. And don't forget to like and subscribe and brush your teeth. <laughs> In academia, maybe you guys know this. We have this idea of the Erdosh number. Do you know that system? It's like the Kevin Bacon number. So oh. Paul Erdosh, a great mathematician who co-authored about 500 papers. If you've co-authored with anyone who has co-authored co with anyone, dot, 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 yeah, with yeah, yeah. Paul Erdosh, you have a finite Erdosh number. And it's the goal is always Kevin, to get... It's basically yes, yeah, Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Yes, yes. So uh, maybe we could have a Satoshi number or, um, yeah, design some some sort of system. We can prove Mostly that just for fun. Satoshi by uh, Kevin Bacon. And yeah. the fun one is the Erdush Bacon number, like the actual the joint number. Yes, exactly. Who have, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Someone, someone's got like a pretty darn small Erdush Bacon number too. I think Natalie, Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. Yes. She has uh, one of the lowest known finite Erdush Bacon joint numbers. Oh, really? Yes. Is that, is that because she's a brilliant scientist as well? I saw her play she, one in the movie once. She published in biology, in computational biology, when she was an undergraduate at Brown University, as I recall. Oh, cool. And the, the computational biologist she co-authored with had co-authored with someone who'd co-authored with Erdos. So that's how she got oh, the Erdos okay. number. And it was like a substantive yeah. piece of scholarship. It totally counts. And then cool. she's been in everything and hence has been with Kevin Bacon in a movie. And so a very, very low number. Yes. Natalie Portperson is a, uh, is a great actress as well. But well, oh, how inclusive of you! I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the update. Very name. progressive. Yeah. The show is also sponsored by BitcoinBook.shop, the Bitcoin-only bookstore by Consensus Network. Consensus specializes in translations of Bitcoin books and also publishes original titles in English and many other languages. Check out BitcoinBook.shop for all your Bitcoin book needs. Consensus is always looking for new contributors, whether you have a book you want to publish, you want to help translate books into your native language, or you have some other way you want to get involved. So if you want to help spread the Bitcoin message, reach out to Consensus Network by Twitter or email. Details are in the show notes. Andrew, this has been an absolutely fantastic 
conversation. I sh- uh, this is one of the conversations where in hindsight, I should have uh, talked less and listened more. <laughs> so we'll have to do this again sometime. Uh, I'd love Luke, to, guys. Do you, Luke, Luke, do you have another question for, for Andrew before we uh, hop out of this thing? Leaving it on a, a light note, we were talking offline before we uh, before we started about your uh, your lovely background. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, your guitars? I decided a while ago that I wanted to get a guitar or two after I moved to Singapore, but then not buy any more because this uh, I have a keyboard in front of me too. This I'm in my studio, my own studio. The temptation for musicians is always to buy more gear, and I just don't think that'll make me happy. I'd rather buy bitcoins or. Uh, Chair for my daughter. That's what I should be using money on. But anyways, so I, I made a two by two matrix and I decided, okay, acoustic, electric, bass, guitar. That's a two by two matrix with four entries. So I've got <laughs> uh, acoustic bass, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, and electric bass. So Excellent. it covers every, it covers all of my needs. I will never buy another guitar again. In truth, I actually use the acoustic bass the most because I can take it downstairs and just goof off without having to plug it in. Fantastic. We'll have to jam sometime as well then. Uh, if I ever get to Singapore, I'll, I'll borrow one of those four. Oh yeah, you have to come over. Can <laughs> maybe at a conference with Troy. Yeah, It'd be great to see either of you. Yeah, I, I don't go to Bitcoin events really, but I started. I've, I've gone to one so far in my life. Aside from random meetups, but I'm, I'm going to more. You should. Uh, they're great for connecting with people, of course. And, uh, yeah, that's what it's all about. So on, on that note, uh, thank you very much for coming on and, uh, love to do this oh, again sometime you. and say hello to Troy if you see him. Thank you guys for your kind attention. And, and may I say to anybody else listening, please read our book, pirate it if you must, or buy it. You can find everything you need to know about it at resistance.money. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Is there anything them. else you'd like to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to get find that. you online. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my Twitter is resistance money. I say ridiculous things. You probably shouldn't follow me. I'll probably offend you. Unless you want to hear somebody talk about Bitcoin, in which case, there I am. And you can find my colleagues also at resistance.money, our website. Uh, all of our, our writings, our podcast appearances, Twitter handles, everything is all there. Absolutely. Yep. This has yeah. been great. This has been the Free and Footprint Show. And thanks again, Andrew, for, for coming on. Thank you, guys. A pleasure. Live long Cheers. and prosper. What did you think of that episode with Andrew? His philosophical perspectives are an interesting contrast to some of our views. I think it made for a great discussion. I can't wait for Resistance Money to come out. That's going to be a great read. Let us know what you thought about the episode. You can send us a boostagram on Fountain, leave us a comment on YouTube, or get in touch on Nostr or Twitter. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode and subscribe to the Consensus Network channel. Our show's sponsors are Wasabi Wallet, Orange Bell App, and BitcoinBook.shop. Use code FOOTPRINT at BitcoinBook.shop for 10% off your purchase. That's all for now. See you next time, and thanks for listening. <laughs>